our study in the book of Revelation. And Revelation is written, as I keep mentioning every Sunday, it's written as a letter to churches. This is not meant to be some odd, uh, odd book that has weird pictures that we kind of set aside and ignore. This is meant to be a book that we actually go to to find helpful, relevant encouragement for real situations in life. And so the book of Revelation really applies to our situation as churches in our setting, even though it was written to churches in a setting 2,000 years ago, it applies to the issues of life, the struggles, the temptations, the trials. And, and each of the different churches we've spoken of so far, we've, we've covered five different churches in these messages in the, in the letter to Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3. And each one of these messages addresses a different aspect to different churches. And all of these messages that we've been hearing apply in some way to all of us. So we're going to continue to hear a message that applies to our church that was written to the church in Philadelphia. So turn your Bibles to Revelation 3. We'll be reading verses 7 to 13. And as we read, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We don't stand to be weird or just because it's our formality. We stand to acknowledge that this is God's holy inspired Word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, there are so many times when we are aware of our smallness, of our littleness, of our weakness, of our inabilities. There's so many times when we seem like we're unable to hold you. God, when we're faced with opposition, with difficulty, with trials, it seems like our strength is too small. But Lord, thank you that you remind us where our source of hope is. Jesus, I pray that you would remind each and every one, that you would show each and every one of us where our true hope is, where our source of hope is, that it's in you and the fact that you hold us and you hold the future. God, I pray that you would help me in my weakness this morning as I pray. Lord, this is a weak means preaching, Lord, but thank you that you move powerfully through weak means, and we trust you, not in my ability. God, we're weak to listen, Lord, and I pray that We wouldn't trust our ability to listen, but we would trust in you who is able to open our ears. 
God, I pray we wouldn't trust our sight, but we trust the fact that you give us sight to see you, to behold your glory, to behold your truth. God, help us in our weakness, we pray. Enable us to hold you knowing that you hold us. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was younger, before shoulder surgery and other issues, I used to like to go rock climbing and before we had children, we would take out a group of singles along with us and we would go down near the Potomac River outside of Washington, D.C. and Virginia there and we'd go in this place called Mather Gorge and it was this long gorge, had hundreds of different places to climb and, and we would go climbing. We would, we would drop the rope from the top, we would, we would anchor the top, drop the rope down, rappel down right by the river and normally you had a couple feet of rock at the bottom and you would sit there and then with the river in the background, it was just a, a kind of a wonderful, peaceful setting. Normally it was like six in the morning before anybody else was out there and it was beautiful, the noise, the sights, the sounds. And it was also exhilarating because you got to rappel down first thing and then you got to climb up and, and I loved it, it was great. It was also a great discipleship opportunity with teaching people to trust God. And so one day, um, Julie, Julie used to go with us and, um, and she never really climbed with us. And one day I was like, hey babe, you know, you should really try. You should really try climbing. It's no big deal. You can do it. I'll, I'll, I'll pick an easy pitch for you. And so we anchored her up, put her in a harness, let her get in, you know, get feel for the rope. And in top rope, you have this harness that goes up to a, a, a carabiners and come back down. And you have somebody belaying you. So I'll belay you, honey. I don't trust anybody else, but I'll belay you and you'll be fine. And so she did pretty good. She got up the wall, I don't know, 50, 60 feet. And then she started to go a little slower, started to get a little scared. And and uh, something happens when you get fearful. Your leg does this thing up and down, bobbing thing. It's kind of like called a sewing machine leg. And so she started having sewing machine legs. I'm thinking, uh-oh, she's a little scared. So I kept encouraging her. She went on. And she got within about five feet of where we dropped the anchors down. And, and when you get to the anchor where you drop them down, you want to stop there. Because once you climb above it, you're past the anchor. And you could pendulum down and hit really hard. And so it's good to stop and then, and then kind of rest in your in your harness and let somebody lower you down. And so she got within about five feet of there. And I was like, okay, you're doing great. And then she got to the anchor and then she wanted to keep going. She's like, I can't go down, I can't go down, I can't go down. Can't. She panics. And she was totally fearful because she looks down and she sees she's about 80 feet up and she doesn't want to sit back in the, in the harness and, 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 and trust that I've got her that I'm holding on to the rope and I won't let her go. And so she's like, no, I trust myself more. But the problem is, is that that's problematic because the last five feet was actually really sketchy and she really could have slipped. And then when you pendulum down and hit yourself on, you know, 10 feet and hit the rock, it could be painful. Uh, and so I was trying to encourage her, you know, nicely, oh, honey, come down, please. You know, it's so all these singles are around and trying to be a good example and discipling people. And so hey, come on down. And she's like, no. And so we had um, an encouraging moment and I uh, tried to encourage her to trust in me, to trust that I've got the rope and she could, she could really do it if she just let go of the rock and just held on to the rope. You know, I was telling her, hey, you know, hold on to the rope. It'll give you a sense of security. Hold on to that rope, hold on to the rope, and then I'll let you down. And so it took some back and forth finally till I just locked off and wouldn't let her go up higher. And then, and so she had no choice but to come down. So um, I'm sure she hated me for a long time after that, or at least that day I know she did. Uh, but she was not pleased with me. I think it, it took a few years to get over that. I asked her my permission before I shared that this morning, by the way. Um, she's good. She likes me now. And, but she needed to 
let go of trusting in herself, hold on to that rope, and, and let, realize that I had her and, and, and I would take her to safety. The, so often the experience as believers is a little bit like that, that we, we get to a place and we don't realize that all along, really, we're safe. God's holding us all along the way, but sometimes we can try to put ourselves in a place of danger by letting go, not trusting in him. We put ourselves in danger and we need to see that, no, we can trust in him. We can, we can trust, we can persevere to the end because he holds us safely. And so the church in Philadelphia, they were in that kind of place. They were in the place where they were surrounded by people who didn't like them. I don't know if you've been in that setting, but it's, it's not a pleasant thing. Not only were they in a city full of unbelievers, that there was very little effect that they had on the unbelieving community around them. Very little people came to Christ in that day in Philadelphia, and from what we can see, it wasn't like this huge amount of people that were saved through that church, and so this church felt small and weak and insignificant. And then to add to that, the people who claimed themselves to be God's people, the Jews in that city, who they probably were originally meeting in the synagogue, they got kicked out of the synagogue. And the Jews were, were likely saying, as they had in other places, that you're not really God's people. And no, you really can't trust that Jesus, and you really aren't God's people, and you really will have no part in God's kingdom, no part in God's place. They probably were saying, you can't even join in Jerusalem. You can't go there. You can't go back to your roots. And so the people were feeling dejected, rejected, small, scared. And what is a church that's small and ineffective, ineffective in their minds at least, and what a church is facing opposition need to hear? They need to hear something very important. And I think it's the same thing we need to hear too. Because if we're honest, often there are times when we feel small, insignificant, or ineffective, where we are aware, you feel like you're all alone, it's scary, you're, you're surrounded by people who are not like you. And, and the more that the world draws these sharp, distinct lines, we realize that we feel like we're a small people and we can't do much. When you look at the world around us and the corruption, you think, am I really going to be able to finish? Am I going to be able to do this? And what did the church then hear and what do we need to hear? It's, it's that we need to hold on to the hope of Jesus because he holds our hope. We can hold on to the hope of Jesus because he holds our hope. That's what, that's what the church then needed to hear, and that's that if you look in this passage, you can see how the church needed hope, and Jesus is encouraging them. This is one of only two churches that he only encourages. Why? Because they needed hope. They needed to hold on to the hope in him, knowing that he held their hope. That's what we need to hear this morning. You know, sometimes it can be hard to trust in Jesus because we can forget who he is, right? You ever, you ever forget who he is? You feel like, I can't really trust him. But he's holding us. We can forget his character. We forget his authority. We forget why we can trust him. And so Jesus lovingly reminds his church, first off in this passage, of who he is and then why we can trust in him. So right at the beginning, what we see is we're going to see three different points that Jesus draws our attention to. In the right beginning, he reiterates who he is, and the church is encouraged to hold on to Jesus because he's holy and true. They can hold on to Jesus. Why? Because he's holy and he's true. He's holy and he's true. Now, how in the world does the holiness of God apply here? Well, if you are part of a church there and you're thinking, I don't know who to trust, it's important to know that Jesus is not like those you've been rejected by. It's important to know that Jesus is not like other people. 
You know, maybe, maybe you've been let down by people before. Anybody here ever been let down by somebody else? And you can raise your hand. Don't, don't nudge somebody beside you if it's them, but raise your hand. You know, anybody let down by anybody else, by people? It's hard to trust again. If you've been abused or mistreated or disappointed by those who trusted, it can be very hard to trust again. Maybe your parents, if they weren't loving or if they were abusive or neglectful, maybe you never had a father who was there. It can be very hard to trust in God. If the people who claim to be God's people, they shun you, they reject you, they abandon you. Or maybe like in this church's case, they were the source of persecution. It can be even harder. You can feel all alone. And that's what the church in Philadelphia likely felt like. They were battered. They were small. They'd been rejected and kicked out of the synagogue. They were told that They weren't really God's people. They were persecuted by those who claimed to be God's people. They were probably turned over to the Romans by the people who used to be their friends. They were already small. They probably felt abandoned. And they needed to hear from Jesus that he was not like them. That he's holy. He's not like the people around you. He's not like an ordinary human. Yes, he's fully God and he's fully man, but he's perfect. He's holy. He's pure. He's, he's pure in his motives. You need to know that as you're, as you're putting your trust in Jesus. He's pure. He's perfect. He's holy. He's, he's always right in his motives. He always does what's right. He's God. There's no one like him. And they also needed to know that he's the true one. Now, something interesting there is that he, he uses his titles there. He's the holy one and he's the true one. What does that mean that he says he's the true one? The word there in the, in the Greek, it means that he... To be true is to have not only the name and resemblance, but the real nature corresponding to the name. In every respect, corresponding to the ideas signified by the name. Real, true, genuine. And Jesus says, I'm holy. I'm not like people around you. I'm not like those in the synagogue of Satan. I'm, 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 I'm holy and I'm true. I'm not untrue to you like others. I'm true. I'm genuine. I can be trusted the very nature, the very character of Jesus is true. He's true in every respect, in all that he is, in all that he does, in all that he says. He's true, he's genuine, he's trustworthy. Do you know that Jesus is true? Not just that he has the truth, but he is true. I think it's interesting how John, who also wrote in the gospel, and he wrote some letters to churches as well, and one of his letters to the churches prior to recording this vision from Jesus in 1 John 5, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. He's not just has the truth, but he himself is true. We need to know that Jesus himself is true. It says, and we are in him who is true. We're secure because Jesus is true and we're securely in him who is true. He says, in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God. And eternal life. I love at the end of Revelation as well, we see another glimpse. And in Revelation, we have the first three chapters or so that are all written to churches. And then chapters four and on are, are reasons why, what's going on behind the scenes, why the churches can do these things they're being called to do. And how they can be faithful, what's really going on, that Jesus really holds the future. And we see those pictures unpacked, and it's really an exposition of those letters to the churches. And so... In Revelation 19, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he 
who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Why is it important that Jesus is true? Why would it have been important to that church? Because the people around them were not true to them, because the people around them probably betrayed them, because they were concerned they're being handed over to Romans who would probably put them to death. In many cases, they would at least take their property. They needed to know that they had a true judge, one that was truly righteous, and that he would judge he was true. You needed, you needed someone who was absolutely true in character and morals and nature. And you needed to trust that Jesus had the ability to judge rightly in everything he does. And so Jesus says, I'm true. Do you know that yourself this morning? Do you know that Jesus is true? That he judges rightly. He holds your future and he, you can trust in him because he, everything he does is true. He's the ultimate true one. He can be trusted truly to uphold what's true and right and good. We might suffer at the hands of those who are untrue. Jesus is not telling them, you are not going to suffer at all. He's saying, I know what's going on there, and I'm true. You know, our justice system, it may suffer from those who are not true. You might suffer from friends who have not been true. You might suffer in a political or governmental system or authority that, because of those who are untrue. Those you might trust might not be faithful to their words and prove untrue. People in your past might have been untrue. The media in this world might not be true, and yet Jesus says, I'm true. That's where you can hang your anchor. Those who claim superior knowledge and understanding, they claim to only uphold what's empirically true. They might not be true, but Jesus is not like any authority, not like any person. He is ultimately true. You know, whenever we experience injustice and suffering at the hands of those who are untrue, it makes us long for the one who's true. And Jesus introduces himself and says, I am true. We never have to wonder if he's faithfully going to carry out what's true and right and good because that's his nature. We can trust him for the future no matter where you're at, no matter what anybody might say. They needed to know that they could hold on to Jesus who is holy and true and that they could hold on to Jesus who holds the future. And that's, that's really what he's saying in the other parts of this passage. You hold on to Jesus who holds the future. This life is not all there is. Sometimes we feel like it's out of control and we are aware of our lack of authority and our lack of control. You ever, you ever aware of your lack of control? Okay, maybe I'm the only one who likes to be in control, and so I'm really aware when I'm not in control, and so I panic and try to be in control. You ever, you ever do that? Anybody here ever, like, I see that everything around me is not in control, so I try to be in control because, oh my goodness, and it's a fear response. And so Jesus says, you can hold on to me because I hold the future. And he gives them a picture here. Look down at your Bibles, if you will. Look how he describes himself. He says, I have the key of David. What in the world does that mean? The key of David? What? What's the key of David? There... Uh, was a position, not only back then and back in Isaiah's time and today as well, of a chamberlain. And they would, they would hold the keys of authority. They would, they would hold the keys and they would execute the will of the king. They'd be in charge of the finances of the king. They'd be in charge of the prison of the king. They'd be in charge of access to the king. And so they were in charge of justice and they were in charge of um, uh, provision. They were in charge of, of access. 
And so Jesus uses this word that was used a long time before him in Isaiah to refer to just that concept of holding this key of David. Back in Isaiah 22 is, is what Jesus is quoting. That's, that's the only other time we see that in, in Scripture. And Jesus is referring back to that. Why? Because he's wanting us to see that he's the one who holds the authority. He has, he's the one who holds access to God. He holds the key to that. He holds access to God's judgment. He holds the key to that. He, he also holds not just access to God and, and judgment. He holds the future. He holds all authority. I want to look with you in Isaiah 22 so you can get an idea for the setting here that, that Jesus is quoting here. Whenever you get to the Bible and you read a term like that, you, it's always good to say, hey, is this term used anywhere else in the Bible? And then you can look and say, okay, wow, this is used. He's quoting something here. And he's referencing Isaiah 22. I'm going to share it's a longer passage with you, but I think it's helpful to get the context. And what has happened here is that there's been a, a man named Shebna, I think, yeah, Shebna, who is a custodian. He's the, he's the keeper of the keys. And he's been unfaithful. He's been untrue. He's been unjust. He's actually been an authoritarian. He's not carried out the king's will. And so Isaiah prophesies that God is saying, hey, I'm going to come and I'm going to take the keys from you and I'm going to give it to somebody who's faithful and trustworthy. And so that's what we see in Isaiah twenty-two fifteen. 15. It says, thus said the Lord of hosts, come, go to the steward to Shebna, who is over the household of the king, and say to him, what have you to do here, and whom have you here that you've cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb in the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. This means he sealed his own fate because he's been unfaithful. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He'll seize firm and hold on to you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, your shame of your master's house. I'll thrust from you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him. So there was a robe they used to wear, and there was a sash, and that sash would hold the key, and they would walk around with this robe, and they everybody know that's the one who's in authority. He carries the king's authority. He says, and I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder, listen to this, the key of the house of David. So the key to all that the Messiah is supposed to do, the house of David is supposed to carry out. He will open, and listen to the words here, this is what he's quoting in Revelation, he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. What's that, what's that indicating? It's indicating that he has ultimate authority. We can skip down actually that passage. We won't read the rest of that for time's sake. This image in Isaiah, it was a transfer from this unworthy servant to a worthy one. It was a transfer from those who claimed to be God's people and God's representative to that, the one who truly was. Israel was supposed to be the representative of God. They were unfaithful and true. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the true one. I have the key. I have the authority. You, you see that? And now he's saying, I'm the one who grants entrance into the city. I'm the one who gives entry to the righteous. And I love how the keeper of the keys in Isaiah, in, in all of this passage in Isaiah from 22 down to 26, it's all about how God carries this out. And so we see in Isaiah 26 too, he says, to the same person, open the gates with the key that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. 
The keys were for entrance to the righteous. And so Jesus is saying, I grant entrance to the righteous. You are now righteous. I hold the keys of David. You're righteous in me. I now open the door for you. You can come into the kingdom. I'm opening the door and no one else can shut it. I open the door, no one can shut it. And no one can shut a door that I open. I have ultimate authority. I can be trusted. That's the history, really, of Revelation 3. The one who has the key of David is none other than Jesus. Earlier in Isaiah 9, 6, kind of leading up to that, in Isaiah 9, 6, it speaks and prophesies of the coming one, of the Emmanuel, and it says that the government would be on his shoulders. And that image, really, of the key on the shoulder of the magistrate of the chamberlain, it's, it's a beautiful picture of who Jesus really is. The government is on his shoulders. He has the authority. He's in control. He can be trusted. He holds the future. He opens the door to the kingdom. He provides the way. He provides access to the king. He... He's over God's judgment and wrath. He holds authority. He he holds access to the finances, the provision for God's people. He holds the key. It might seem to the church in Philadelphia like the Jews around them hold the keys because they've been shut out of the keys to the synagogue. They've been kicked out. They've been they've been told that they're not really God's people. They don't really belong. And Jesus says, no, I've got the keys. They don't, they don't control access to the kingdom, I do. They might think that the Romans have authority over them, and Jesus is saying, no, I have the true messianic throne. I've got the keys of David. I hold all authority over all things, and, and on, my govern, on, on my shoulders the government rests. Jesus is the one who has the keys of David and the kingdom, and he's over all of God's household. And here in Revelation, it's this beautiful picture of absolute authority and power, Jesus holds the key open or shut to the door of heaven and that's a wonderful promise to us that he's the one who opens the door for us. He's opened the way. He's opened the way for us to have access to God and he holds that key. No one's taking that key from him. He holds all authority. He holds authority over provision. He holds authority over God's wrath. And he's opening a door and says, come in, come into my kingdom. Jesus alone opens doors that no one will shut, and any door he shuts, no one may open, it says in verse 8. doesn't matter what they've been put out of. The door to God's kingdom will not be shut for them. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, the door to the kingdom will not be shut. No matter what people around you say, no matter how unfaithful people have been, no matter how you've been rejected, and how people say, well, no, you can't enter the kingdom because you don't do these things. You don't look this way. You don't act this way. You can say, no, my hope's not in that. My hope's in Jesus. He holds the keys. No one can shut the door that's open to them in which they'll enter into when they die. And I love the way Sam Storms puts it. He's got a little book. It's 50 Days of Devotions. It's called The One Who Conquers. And it's on these first seven letters to the church in Revelation. And from one letter, he says, no one is able to shut this door. I think I have a quote for you up there. Skip past the next scripture, I think. There you go. Perfect. No one is able to shut this door into eternal relationship and intimacy with Jesus. You get that? This entrance into eternal joy and life in his presence, no one, not your worst enemy, not even those who mock you for your faith, not Islamic terrorists or economic collapse or a terminal illness, nothing 
not the collective power of the entire world, not the combined energy of all demonic beings, neither Satan or any other created being can overturn the decree of Christ who says, these are my people and shall remain so forever. He holds the key. And he says, I know, I know where you're at. I've got all authority and power, but I know you've, you've got little power. There's times in life when you're aware that you're weak, that you have little power. Now, for this church specifically, they were historically known as a small church. They didn't have big impact. They weren't a mega church. They weren't, you know, happening. They didn't have tons of programs, things happening. They were a small church. They likely didn't seem to have a very powerful impact on the city around them. There's not much they can do. They hardly have any earthly power or ability. They seem small. They seem weak, but little power. And the church here, because of persecution, they're likely growing faint as well. And now, for us as individuals, we can feel and be aware of our smallness, of our weakness, that we have little power, that we're not in control, that, and yet you need to hear that Jesus knows that we have little power, that we're weak. He says, and yet you've kept my word. You've kept the word of Jesus, who Jesus is, about Jesus, the word of the gospel. You've not denied my name. You've, in the face of idolatry, you've not given in to serving idols. In the face of temptation, you've not given up. In the face of persecution, you've not quit. In the face of all these things, you've not denied my name by your profession, by your actions. And you can trust that one day you'll be vindicated. And so he tells them in verse 9, he says he's going to make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not but, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and they'll learn that I've loved you. How, how can we trust him? We, we can trust him because we know he holds the future and he holds the key. He makes lots of promises in these verses that are beautiful. He holds the keys. He opens doors. He makes a way for us. He's also the one who will one day vindicate us and that he will vindicate his church. No matter what it might seem like here, he's the one who vindicates and we can trust in him. And then, here's what he says, not only will they bow down, he will be vindicated, his church will be vindicated. He says, they will learn that I've loved you. Why, Why can we trust in Jesus and our smallness and our weakness? It's because he loves us. They probably claimed in the city that, that you know, God doesn't really love you because you're not really part of us. And Maybe you've heard that, that God doesn't really love you because of your behavior. God doesn't really love you because of your performance. God doesn't love you because you don't do a very good job being a Christian. Or maybe the devil tells you those things. Or you know what, you, you aren't really, you're not very influential. God must not really love your church because it's not a big church. It's a small church is what this church was hearing. And he says, no, I don't, I don't measure that way. I don't measure that way. And you'll know that I'll vindicate you. And they, they'll one day know that I, I love you and that's what's meant to mark you. And just like when they appeared to, uh, when Saul was persecuting the, the Christians in his day, he's on the road to Damascus. Jesus knocks him down and he says, you know, who are you, Lord, Saul says. And Jesus says, I am the one who you're persecuting. And that's what he says here to this church. He says that they think that they belong to God, but they're not. They're really the synagogue of Satan because they're persecuting you. They claim to be part of my synagogue, but they're not. They're part of the synagogue of Satan. They're persecuting you. And so one day I'm going to let everybody know that I love you. If we suffer for Jesus in the sake of his word and his name, he's going to carry out his justice. He's going to 
vindicate his people and everybody will know that he loves, that he loves us. In the city of brotherly love, they were feeling no love. And yet Jesus says, I've loved you and they'll know that. He's the true friend that sticks closer than a brother. I love in Isaiah 43, he says, Isaiah 43, 4, because you are precious in my eyes, who's the true people of God, because you're precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. That last phrase of, of verse 3, 9 says, they will learn that I've loved you. It kind of calls to mind as well. Deuteronomy 7, 8, the Lord explains to Israel that he chose them because he loved them. And ironically, the chosen people of God have rejected them. And he says, no, you're not rejected. I love you. Not only that, he tells the church in Philadelphia, he'll keep them from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world or to try to test the world. Look in verse 10. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell in the earth. Now, whenever that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is used in Revelation, it's always used of those who not just live on the earth, but those who are worldly or are part of the earth's system. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to protect you from wrath that's carried out on those who dwell on the earth, part of the earth's system. I'm going to keep you from that hour of trial. Now, this is not an earning. Don't, don't mistake me. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. No, this is, this is God's keep holding them. And, and as evidence, they're keeping his word of patient endurance. They're enduring because they're evidencing that they can be sure that they'll be kept. And the word for trial here, it's used only this one time in Revelation. It literally means a, a period of testing, a trial, temptation, enticement. We don't know what the time is specifically. It's an hour. It's somewhat briefer than the other times of trials and testing that we see in Revelation. But he's going to keep them from that time that's coming on the earth dwellers. He's going to keep them from evil in the midst of persecution. I, like, I love the the echoes of John 17 that this is. In John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he, he's praying about his disciples, and he says in John 17, 14, he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. And it's in that sense, he says, I'm going to keep you from. It's not taking out of, but I'm going to keep you from the evil one. When God pours out his wrath to those who dwell on the earth, he promises to keep his church from the hour of trial, even if we might die. I'm keeping you from, I'm keeping you from the wrath on God's judgment on the people of the earth. It might apply, uh, refer to a pending trial that was coming. It also could apply to subsequent trials, temptations. It, it might apply to the ultimate trials. But that's not what's important here. It's that Jesus is indicating when times of trials come, and people on the earth are judged, you won't be. I'm going to keep you from that. He's able to keep his people from evil. It's something we can hang on to. And in 2 Peter 2, Peter writes, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. No matter how long it might seem, Jesus promised the church then something that still applies to us. He says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Now, it's not soon as we figure, because it's been a couple thousand years since he said that, but he's coming soon. His, his coming is imminent. And what he wants them to do is he wants them to live knowing he holds a future in light of his imminent return. So always live as he's coming back. 
And that's the message for that church. It's the message for this church that we can hold to. We need to always long for, look for the return of Jesus. He is coming. We need to live as if he's coming. Live that we can hope and hang on to the fact that he's coming back. He says, hold fast. I'm coming soon, and because I'm coming soon, hold fast. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He's coming. In the meanwhile, hold fast. Not hold fast so you obtain something you don't have. Hold fast so that no one seizes what you already got. He's, he's saying here, he's already given you a crown. He's, there is now laid up for you in heaven a crown of righteousness. And so he's saying, hold fast so somebody doesn't take your hope from you. Somebody doesn't take your crown. That's how you conquer. He says, hold fast to what you have in Jesus. Hold fast to the good news. Hold fast to who you are and, and what he's made you to be. Hang on to your confession in the face of difficulties. In Philadelphia, they probably would have hosted some athletic competitions. They were known to host races that were prior to the Olympics, and the victor would receive a crown for running the race. And he says, hang on to what you have so that no one may seize or steal it. The enemies might seek to disqualify them, discredit them, but they're to hold fast and not turn aside. We can hold on to him because he's holy and true. We can hold on to him because he holds the future. We can hold on to him. He's got the keys. He, he, he's opened the door for us and nobody will shut it. We can hold on to him who promises us a place in him. And that's the final thing we'll see is that we can hold on to Jesus who promises us a place in him. That's what he promises. Look in verse 12. The one who conquers, the one who conquers is the one who holds on, by the way. <laughs> I... I I love the, the times when we've gotten to take our, our kids to the beach, and um, I've got kids of all different ages, but at every one of them at some different stage in life, they were afraid of the waves, you know, from Noah, and he was a little one-year-old, all the way to Eva, we've got six kids, so we've repeated the same cycle over and over again of, of letting them know that, um, that they, can, they can trust me to take them out into the waves and not be scared, you know, and eventually they get to the point where they love to jump the waves, float over, go boogie boarding, body surfing, you know. But when I was, each of them were young, they were terrified. And I would, I would do something that people might think I'm nuts. I would actually take them to the waves to show them that they could trust me and to learn and learn what they were able to endure and take and to, to learn that they didn't need to be fearful, you know, to have a right fear of the waves, but not an undue fear. And so when I, what I would do is I would hold on to them and I, I wouldn't grab their hands because their hands are too slippery because they were just full of like, you know, all kinds of sunscreen and spit and everything else the young kids' hands would fuck out on them. And so their hands are never strong enough. So I would grab them around the wrists, really strong, right behind the hands so that if my hand slips, I'm, I'm hitting their hand and, and to hold their wrist. And then I would actually kind of put my little pointer finger up and let them hold my finger and they would think they were holding on. They were holding my fingers, and they were, they were thinking they were holding on, so it gave them a sense of security. But the reality is, is that often their, their, their grip would fail, and, and that's really nothing that would keep them. But I was holding them. And so I would take them out, and bigger and bigger, and what would happen is the wave will come, and then I would, I would pull them up, and I would say, jump, and they would think they were jumping, and I was pulling them up over the waves as they would come, and they would think they were jumping, and I'd pull them up, and finally they got excited, look at me, I'm jumping, and yeah, you're jumping, that's right. I'm getting like exhausted because I'm pulling them up. My arms are burning. Um, now that I've got an older son, um, 
He's a man, and so sometimes I'm like, hey, man, this is your turn. <laughs> you can help because my arms are so sore. Jesus makes some promises here that he's, he's holding us. He's, he's going to give us a permanent place. He's going to give us a name. I, I love the promises we see here. He's, he's, look in verse 12. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What does that mean? A pillar? He says, never shall he go out of it. I'm like, what, am I going to be stone? Is he saying I'm literally going to be a stone column and I'm, when I get to heaven, that's it? I'm stuck? I'm going to write on him a name of my God. What, is he going to take a giant sharpie and write on our face? What, what in the world's going on there? The name of the city of my God. So we're going to have like God up here and like down either arm we have the city, Jerusalem. I mean, what is this talking about? And he says, and then my own name, you know, we got graffiti all over us. Is that what he's talking about? We're a stone with graffiti. It's interesting that in, in that day, um, Philadelphia was a city that was prone to lots and lots of earthquakes. And so what they would do is um, the earthquakes would come and they would have to leave the city because they were afraid of the buildings falling on them. So they would live outside the city for a time period. And some of the only structures that stood, and if you go into that area today, some of the only structures that remain standing are, are the pillars. The pillars remain standing. And in Philadelphia, some of the founders and the original people who, to commemorate them, to give them a place of honor, they would inscribe their names on these pillars. And these pillars were the only thing that was standing. And so he tells these people who feel like they don't belong, not only in the city because of earthquakes, they feel like they don't belong to God's people. They've been cast out of the synagogue that they have a permanent place in God's temple. You ever long for a true and lasting home? You ever long to just live somewhere perfect forever? I know I do. That's why we try to build houses and have things and surround ourselves with comfort. You ever want to belong fully and completely without feeling like there's any part of you that's unwelcome or doesn't belong? That's how the people in Philadelphia felt. They felt like they were unwelcome, like they didn't belong. They didn't have a lasting home. I think we're designed with those desires, not because we're meant to fulfill them here on earth, but because we're meant to long for our true home, the temple, the place where God is. And so in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked perfectly with God in communion, in fellowship, in their home, in their place with him, in relationship with him, in close communion with him. Ever since then, man was kicked out of the garden. Now Jesus has opened the door. He's provided a way. He says, now... Uh, you have access, free access into the temple, free access into the kingdom, free access into God's presence, free access to provision of grace. Not only that, you can be sure that you're going to forever be like a pillar in the temple of God. We're not meant to stop desiring those things. We're just meant to find their fulfillment in Jesus, in him. We're made to live with God, to be in him and his city, to belong to him completely and be united with him, so united we bear his name. When people see us, they see the name of Jesus. When they see us, they see God. That's, that's what it will be like, and it's a breathtaking promise that he gives here. You ever think about a pillar? A pillar is a permanent fixture, right? So he's not saying we're literally pillars, but what we are is we're, we're, we'll be a permanent fixture in God's temple. We will belong there forever and be solidly planted there. No one can kick us out of God's temple. The Jews have been kicked, had kicked out the church in Philadelphia out of the synagogue and they probably banned them from the temple and God's saying, don't worry about that because you have a permanent place in my presence. You'll be like a pillar in the temple of my God and you'll never get kicked out. Never will you go out. Not only that, 
I'm going to write my, the name of God on you. He's, he's going to give those who overcome a permanent place. You're going to stand strong and forever in him. Isn't that good news? One who overcomes will stand strong, have a lasting place in the temple of God. No matter how little power you have, he has made you already like a pillar. You feel small, you feel like you have little power, he's going to make you like a temple, a pillar. No one questions whether a pillar is part of the place, it belongs there. No one wonders why a pillar is there. Of course it's there, it's part of the temple. That's what he's saying about us. And the name of God, not only belong to Jesus, we have the name of God, our Father. Think of that. You're, you're not an orphan. You're no longer an orphan. We have the family name of God written on us. And then he promises the right, not only the name of God on us, but the, the name of the city of Jerusalem. What does that speak to? It speaks to the fact that we have a citizenship that's in heaven, a true home that we're never kicked outside of the city. We're, we're, we're never in a place we have to be on shaky foundations. We are, have a place of security. And, and he, he writes his, the name of the city of Jerusalem on us. We belong there. We're citizens there. Our citizenship is heaven and heaven is secure. That's what he's saying. You're secure in who you are in God. You're secure in access to God. You're secure in your heavenly citizenship. You belong in this perfect city with God restored to communion and and God's presence with fellowship with God, access to God. All of the sin and the effects of the garden will be done away with, is what he's saying. You'll have access to God. You'll have his name again. The true paradise, the true utopia, the perfect place. No problems, no deficiencies, no decay, no problems. I like how Revelation 21 speaks of this fact. He says, then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And he says, you're, you're going to have a permanent place in that city. You're going to have a permanent place in, in the city that's adorned, where, where God's presence is. It's joined to Jesus. Not only that, those who conquer, he says, will have Jesus' own new name. I think this is a kind of fulfillment of Isaiah 62. In Isaiah 62, too, God prophesied of the future, and he says, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Jesus says that to us now. He says that to the church. He says, I'm going I'm to write my own new name on you. You, you might feel like you're defined by your smallness, your weakness, your inabilities, but he says, I've given you a new name. I'm writing my new name on you. You're not defined by who you thought of yourself to be. I, you're now going to be defined fully and completely by who I name you to be. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church, how do we respond? How, how, do, we, how do we apply this to our lives? I think it's... It's simple, but it's something we have to do continually. Something we have to remind ourselves continually. So, so what I want to do in response is I want to actually hold on to Jesus by, by receiving communion, receiving his body, the thing we're trusting in. His body has made a way for us to have access to him. So if the ushers would go ahead and come forward, begin passing out communion. If you have placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. If you've placed your faith in him, 
the fact that God has poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of you, then we welcome you to join together in receiving communion. If you've not done that, then just go ahead and let the cup pass. If you're not comfortable taking it this morning, let the cup pass. There's no judgment if you don't participate, but we welcome you to participate together with us. And as you're holding that cracker and that juice, I want, I want you to think about what they symbolize. You see, he's opened the door, is what he says. He holds the key. How, how did he get the keys? He got the keys because he defeated the power of sin by living a perfect life. He defeated the power of sin by taking all the punishment and wrath for sin, what? On, on, on his body. That's what this cracker represents. It represents the fact that he took all of our weakness, all of our sin, all of our insufficiencies on himself. So you look at that cracker and think, all of my weakness, all of my littleness, all of my sins, all of my inabilities, he's taken all those things on himself. That's what this cracker is symbolizing, his body broken for us. And, and when he was on the cross, he cried out with a loud voice and he says, it is finished. And, he, and, and after he did that, it opened the way for us. And then the, the, the drink, this juice that we're holding here, it represents his blood that was spilled that's washed us clean. Now we have the right not only to, not only our sins paid for, we have the right to come boldly before the throne of grace. Now we're cleansed. We don't have to be afraid. Does God accept us? Will he accept us? No, because we've been washed clean by his blood. And, and I love what happened when Jesus died. It wasn't... It wasn't an accident when he died. It says the temple curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom, this thick curtain. And it was indicating that what? That no longer was the doorway blocked. He's opened the door. That's what we're holding on to. When you hold on to communion, you're holding on to the fact that he has all authority and power. He's conquered every sin. That he has all authority and power. That he has made a way that you can come near to God. He holds the keys to death and hell. And that he's opened the door and no one can shut it. The temple curtain was torn in two. He's opened the door. He's opened up access to God. And that we can come now freely into him. Now what do we need to do? We need to hold on to that. Every day, day by day. Keep holding on to Jesus because he holds us. Trusting in his body broken and his blood given for us. To secure our place in his house as his pillars forever. To secure our right to the temple. To give us a new name. To make us holy. And the night before he was betrayed, Jesus said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Let's take the, the cracker and let's eat it together, holding on to his body broken for us. As you're eating that, I want you to consciously say, you know, I'm no longer holding on to how other people view me. I'm no longer holding on to my own sins. I'm no longer holding on to the condemnation that I feel like I deserve. I'm not holding on 
to what people think of me, not holding on to hope in this earthly life and my own abilities, my smallness. I'm, Jesus, I want to hold on to your body. I want to hold on to you. Well, when Jesus continued with his disciples, he held up a, a glass and he said, this is my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often in remembrance of me. And, and, and as you're holding this glass, I want you to remember that he's, he's cleansed you from all your sins. That's what you're holding on to because you're going to fail tomorrow and you're going to fail probably this afternoon. And all these different letters or messages to the churches, all of them have a different kind of command and all of them in some way talk about holding fast or hanging on or enduring or conquering. And yet, you know what? We are too small. We couldn't hang on. We weren't good enough. And yet Jesus endured. He hung on faithful to the end on the cross. Because he was faithful to the end, we can hang on to him. Because he was faithful to shed his blood, to give his life for us. That's our hope. Our hope is not in our faithfulness, on our abilities. Our hope is in his strength and his ability. He's conquered every sin. He knows how to defeat every sin. And that's what we hang on to. So let's drink the juice, thinking of his blood that is what we hang on to. It sprinkled us clean. It gives us access to the Father. Let's drink together. Going to have the, the band come up. I want to sing a song in response. And you can go ahead and stand as they're coming up. We so often forget. We so often try to finish on our own. We so often try to go beyond what he's calling us to do. And he says, no, I know that you're little. I know that you're small. But hold on to me. And that's our hope and our, our, our confidence. So, as we're singing, I want you to make that confession. Even if you don't feel like you feel like I'm small, I'm aware of my weakness, I'm aware of my inability. Good. Jesus says, I know that. I'm not asking you to, to climb all the way to the top on your own. I, I want you to hold on to me, to trust in me. So let's sing together in response.